All right, good morning. Let's start this morning uh, by praying together. Let's pray. And Father, we are grateful this morning um, for the opportunity to gather as your people on the Lord's Day. We thank you that you've given us this day as a gift um, to rest and to worship and to be nourished uh, by your word and your sacrament that you give us in the person of your Son. And Father, we pray that even as we study the, your word this morning, even before worship, that you would uh, dwell with us by your Spirit, that it would be for us um, words of life and wisdom. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, this uh, spring, as you know, we are continuing our study of the book of James, the epistle of James, and um, thinking through um, its content. Um, some of the things we've talked about regarding James, that it is likely an early epistle, perhaps the earliest epistle, actually in the New Testament canon. I think there's some good textual evidence for that. Um, that it is written to a largely Jewish church that has likely been dispersed um, from Jerusalem um, into um, the surrounding um, cities in the Mediterranean world. It is written to Christians who are experiencing persecution and suffering. And the Apostle uh, James, or perhaps the brother of Jesus, um, writes um, to encourage them um, to be steadfast in the midst of their trials, um, to be patient, to wait um, for the Lord um, to bring about that which He desires, which is their maturity, um, the maturity of their faith, and that this comes actually through steadfastness in the midst of testing. Um, sort of the theme verse for James is uh, 2 through 4 um, of the first chapter, where he says, Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I'm going to be talking some about this today in our sermon as we reflect together on um, the, uh, the interaction that Jesus has with the Syrophoenician woman um, and uh, the, uh, connecting that story and where Jesus initially sort of brushes her aside and tells her this parable that's confusing and even offensive. Um, but he does it as a means of testing her faith, of encouraging her to, to grapple with him, to wrestle with him, and to grow. And how that story is connected to the story, I think, of Jacob and Jacob's life, and especially his wrestling with God at the ford of Jabbok, and how the Lord um, has invited Jacob really throughout his life um, to strive with him, to grow up in maturity and faith. I think sometimes this is a category that we don't think a ton about. We think of faith as kind of a, an on-off switch. You know, you have it or you don't. It's a binary thing. Um, but the scriptures really, you know, certainly there is a kind of sense in which that is true. Uh, there are some who have faith and some who don't have faith. Uh, but for those who have faith, um, certainly I think the scriptures presents faith as something that we grow in. It is not simply a static category. It is something that we are called um, to move forward in, to mature in, um, to to. Uh, there's, a, there's a trajectory for our faith, for the life of faith. And I think the argument that James is making here is that it is as our faith is tested that it grows, as we learn to be steadfast, as we learn to knock on that door um, and knock and knock um, and wait for it to open, that our faith actually grows in the one who is unseen, the one who at times is unseen because he hides himself, um, uh, because he hides himself for us um, in order for us to wait and knock and be patient and let the 
steadfastness of our faith have its full effect, making us mature and complete. Um, we have basically, that's kind of an overview of some of the things that we looked at in chapter one. Um, this morning, um, we are beginning to get into chapter two, and I just want to jump in there this morning so we have time to really begin to discuss it. Any questions about any of that, though, before we jump into the second chapter of James? Okay, James is all about wisdom. It's all about maturity. It's all about um, the calling of believers to rule with Christ, um, to exercise authority um, in proper kinds of ways and ways that are um, fitting, um, ways that are like Jesus. And I think that this chapter, chapter 2, especially the first section, really has to do with that. How is the life of the church going to be structured and ruled in such a way that it reflects the character of Jesus, the one who has all wisdom? This is what James says. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges? with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. I'm going to stop there. We'll get into the rest of the, the section here in a moment. Stop at verse 7. Let's notice a few things about this. First, what is James doing here, just in terms of form, as he, uh, as he, as he, as he writes? He's telling a story, but what kind of story is it? It's kind of a parable, right? It is itself an imitation of the teaching of Jesus. It's one of the things that we've been looking at is, is the, uh, uh, the way in which James really mirrors the instruction and teaching of Jesus, especially um, thinking about the Gospel of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. James uses a lot of the same phrases and images. Um, and here I think he's doing a similar kind of thing that Jesus did a lot in his teaching, which is he tells a story. He says, here's something. Um, here's an illustration. Here's an example of the kind of thing um, that 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 is happening, and what what is the story basically? Somebody put it in modern, more modern sort of contemporary language. Clicks, yeah. What do you mean by that? Some are favored over others, yeah. Just real concretely, basically saying, let's say you're having worship on Sunday, right? And in comes uh, the homeless guy off the street. Um, and 
you know, he sort of wanders in and, and everyone's concerned and, and sort of doesn't want to get too close. And they say, well, you know, there's the spot over there in the corner back there where no one will see you or talk to you or touch you. You can sit there, but then next comes in the big, you know, nice family with well-dressed clothes and, you know, driving a nice vehicle. And, and uh, everyone rushes to them to shake their hands and to say, why don't you sit next to me, right? I've got this spot right up next to the front that's perfect. Um, you know, we saved a whole row for you. This is wonderful. I'll meet you some hymnals, and here's an order of worship, right? And that, this is basically, that's the story he's telling. And it's not one that's crazy, right? It's, it's a story that <laughs> we could probably think about in terms of our own uh, instinctive responses to different kinds of people um, that might come into our house of worship. I think that's the story that James is, that's what he means by assembly there. He doesn't just mean your house. Um, he means, um, I mean, he might mean a house because likely these Christians, of course, are worshiping in houses at this point. They don't have church buildings. Um, but he means worship. He means the assembly of the saints. And he's saying, if, if a man with a gold ring and fine clothing comes in and you treat him one way um, differently than the poor man with shabby clothing, um, then you have become judges with evil thoughts, you've made distinctions among yourselves. And of course, he begins with this assertion, this exhortation rather, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then he says, don't make these kinds of distinctions that you might be tempted to make. So let's think about this for a moment. Let's think first, why might... Um, the Christians to whom James writes be tempted to make these kinds of distinctions outside of just their normal human preference for yeah they might be employed by some of these guys yeah absolutely that that certainly may be the case um, that that certainly the church at this point was largely made up of people that didn't have a lot of social standing themselves and, and the rich person comes in, and he may have some, some influence, some, even over them directly, right? And there's a temptation to defer to that. Yeah, Eric and then James. Yeah, so James is writing to cities like Antioch, um, where the gospel has gone. And yeah, it's likely that in that city there are some people who are more powerful than others, of course, not likely it is the case. There are some people more powerful than others, and the ancient world worked a lot like our world, where, you know, the larger your bank account, the more, uh, essentially, the more social capital, the more political sway you would have. So if you if you can get this rich person to join your assembly, um, then maybe they can do something about, you know, the, the unjust laws, about the property being taken, about whatever it is that is affecting your life. Um, so there's a temptation to curry favor uh, with the, we shouldn't just read wealth here, we should read power, right? Um, political power, um, social influence, those kinds of things. Yeah, James. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, it, it may be possible that these are people, rich folks, who are not only, um, you know, uh, standing aside while persecution happens, perhaps they are actually initiating it. Maybe they're the ones who are who are. And so there's this there's this temptation to um, to to curry favor with them, to manipulate them, perhaps into a more tolerant attitude um, toward the Christian assembly. 
But what is the problem here? What is the problem that James has with this kind of attitude? You can certainly understand from a pragmatic point of view why treating people differently makes a lot of sense um, in terms of, you know, protecting yourself and your community. But what is, what, is the, what is the problem that James has with this? Why does he not want them to show partiality? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in verse 5, um, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Of course, that is pointing directly back to um, places like the Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, Luke puts it even more uh, directly in his um, version of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's see if I can find that. Uh, basically, he just says, as here we are in Luke 6, 20. Blessed are you who are poor. He doesn't even say poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of God. Uh, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. It also fits with um, the, the song of Mary, um, who talks about how um, the Lord has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has filled the hungry with good things, the rich he has sent empty away. That this sort of... Um, Turnover. This upside-down kingdom is the kingdom that Jesus is bringing, where um, where the poor are no longer to be ostracized or shoved to the side, but they actually have a fundamental place. And this isn't, I don't think, some kind of a preferential treatment for the poor over the rich. What it's saying is that these distinctions are not um, what determines um, one standing before God. And we all know that human societies are are not based that way. Um, that those who are rich and powerful have a greater um, greater prominence, greater distinction. And James is saying, no partiality, no partiality. He's also saying this, Luann, you had your hand up before I say anything else. What, what were you thinking? Yeah, that's interesting, yeah. Yes, that there there's certainly um, in Judaism a, a or in the Jewish sort of history a idea that they were the distinctive people of God vis-a-vis everyone else, and that was, although I don't know that that was certainly they took that places where the law did not intend. Right, the law does favor the poor. The law is the law of God has tons of protections for the poor and things that that cannot be done against them. Um, the law also um, uh, specifically Leviticus nineteen fifteen. Um, the Lord says through Moses to the people of Israel, He says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Um, Here, James, what he's doing really is just applying the the law of Israel, the law of God um, to Israel, um, to the current contemporary situation and saying, um, that that you may not show partiality because God has instructed you not to be partial. And that law uh, that was part of the Old Testament um, religion um, is one that is rooted in God's own nature himself. Remember that Romans um, chapter 2 
Um, Paul reflects on the character of God and the judgment that will come in the last day. And he says, um, God shows no partiality, no partiality in his judgment, that all will stand before his, uh, his, his judgment seat, all will receive the judgment um, by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ with no partiality shown at all. So it's, a, it's something that is rooted in the character of God. Um, and it is something that we as believers are called to reflect. And it's actually, um, it's just interesting because it's, he's assuming by giving them this instruction that they are judges, that they have authority, um, that they have influence and power. Does that make sense? Which is really interesting, writing to the small Christian community that doesn't have a lot of social capital or influence. He's saying, you, you need to be like the judges in the Old Testament, exercising judgment without partiality. You need to be like your Heavenly Father or the Lord Jesus Christ, who on the last day will exercise judgment without partiality. You are called to have authority. When you, and as believers, I think that's a really fascinating thing to think about, that actually, when we gather as God's people on the Lord's Day, this is a, we are ruling and reigning together, and the way that we structure our society, the way we structure our community, has ramifications not only for us, but ripples out into the world around us, um, that, that we use that, that authority either wisely, or we are judges with evil thoughts, as James says, if we uh, fail to use it in a way um, that serves and, and lifts up and, and does not um, show partiality and division. What other thoughts come to you from these first seven, seven verses? Absolutely. Yeah. Right. That's a great connection. Yes, yeah, so Paul is connecting this. I mean, Paul. Uh, Todd is connecting this with um, verse 9 of chapter 1, where he says, James says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of the grass, he will fade away, referring to the rich man. That there is this temptation um, for this little community of Christian believers to not read things rightly, to not understand that, that just because a person has influence and power right now, doesn't mean that they really have influence and power. That actually in God's economy, in his kingdom, those with the most influence and power may be the ostracized, may be the ones on the outskirts of the kingdom or of the society. Um, and they need to be careful who they're siding with, basically. Now, you don't want to side with the rich if they're going to come under God's judgment. Um, that's not the place where you want to be. That's right. That's exactly right. It's a big part of what he's saying here. Uh, and we know how the rich are acting largely towards the Christian community. He says, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? That it is the wealthy. And it's likely that, that the wealthy here are not just the wealthy generically, but there are Jewish wealthy people um, that have power and are using that power to oppress the church, to squash out this heretical sect. 
uh, based around Jesus of Nazareth. It's also interesting, I think, that verse 6 when he says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Um, I think it's right for us to read that Christologically, you know, that this is, this is a parable about a poor man and a rich man. Um, but really the parable, what he's saying here is when you, when you dishonor the poor man, you are dishonoring Jesus. You are dishonoring the one who was made poor that you might be made rich, as Paul will say um, in his letter to the Corinthians. Um, you were, and of course, Jesus in his life, this is, we know this is how he lived, right? He says it, that he had no place to lay his head. Um, certainly he did not have uh, worldly wealth or influence um, uh, according to, to normal accounting of those things anyway. So I think what James is saying here when he says, but you have dishonored the poor man, he's not just referring to the poor man in the parable. He's referring to the poor man, the one who was made poor, um, Jesus himself. Um, certainly he is saying in verse 7, when he connects the rich to the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called, he's connect. that's the name of Jesus, right? Uh, the rich in this story, in this example, in this um, context are those who are bringing oppression against um, the church. Any other thoughts about this partiality thing? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah, that's a great example. Um, just to make sure everybody heard that. Aaron was talking about how this, where this really could play out is when there's conflict in the church or maybe a church discipline situation where those in authority, the elders of the church, uh, may be tempted to, uh, def- to do the opposite of what the law requires in Leviticus, to show deference to the rich um, in order to not lose their financial support for the church. Um, and yeah, this there's no question, this is a, a contemporary temptation and challenge and is one that, you know, churches failed to do well all the time. Um, and yeah, you're right, that's where the road meets the road. And certainly the church is supposed to be the place where, of all human societies, truly no partiality is shown, that, that the, uh, the rich and the poor are truly treated equally, equal before God, equal before one another. And that is, and, and we know, I mean, let's not kid ourselves, right? Our justice system in America, as fine as it is, and I would certainly prefer it to probably any other country in the world, is still, if you're rich, you get one version, and if you're not, you get a different version. That's just the way it works out, practically, uh, many times. And, and I think we kid ourselves, we don't think that that is part of the deal, and again, don't hear I'm not saying. I'm thankful that we have justice and we do. It's a lot better than living in Russia or wherever. Um, um, but still, there are inequalities. There are uh, places where, where wealth, wealth, wealthy and poor people are treated differently. We need to be very careful that the church is not 
like that, um, that, that money does not buy you preference or, or deference. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, and this is a core issue. This is a core issue in the Old Testament. Um, you, should, you should not take a bribe, right? That, that law against bribery or preference and judgment is so, it's so crucial, just think about it, to the ordering of any society, right? And you see this in human societies um, where there is no trust in the authorities, where everyone assumes that you can buy justice, um, everything has a cost. It's a fundamentally different society. And that is a place where, as Americans, we should be grateful that, uh, yes, there are, there are systemic inequalities and problems in our justice system, but it is true that, you know, at least, you know, in 99.9% of the cases, you're not going to be able to go to a judge and give them a million bucks and get off for murder or whatever, you know, um, where there are other societies where you can do that. And that's a, that's a, that creates a, a really dangerous kind of society. But that's the kind of thing that James is talking about here, right? He's basically saying, don't do that. It's going to destroy your church. Yes, ma'am, Lewin. Yeah. Right. Right. If they're if they're doing well financially, God must love them and yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Are men qualified for church leadership because they're successful financially, right? I think that's a great temptation in circles like ours. Um, right. Right. Absolutely. And this, of course, has tons of implications, right? Not just for wealth, but for preference in general when we exercise judgment. And all of us exercise judgment in our lives constantly, right? And so for parents, we're exercising judgment if we're um, teachers, we're exercising judgment. If we have any kind of authority in our workplace, we're exercising judgment um, over other employees. Um, you know, this this is something that all the time we are doing, and we have to be very careful um, not to exhibit preference um, uh, based on uh, things that are outside of what God requires and teaches. And this this idea of no partiality is a really fundamental aspect of who God Himself is and who we are, are called to be. All right, I'm going to continue to move us on here so we can make, make ground. Let's read verses 8 through 13. James says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy 
to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. All right, how is this section related to the one that immediately precedes it? What are some of the things that we see, some of the themes show up here again? Yeah, God's, God's law is the one that matters, both in terms of how we judge others, but also how we are to be judged. We want that same standard. We don't want a standard that wavers and moves around. Yeah, what else? somebody else said something, I think. Yeah, it's certainly clearly identifying partiality and judgment as a sin against God and thus a breaking of the entire law in terms of being under the law's judgment. Yeah, Nathan. Sure. Right. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so Jesus, of course, and this story with the woman who's caught in adultery is brought to before Jesus, they want to stone him. The Pharisees stone her. The Pharisees do, and again, you see partiality even in that story because, like, where's the dude, right? <laughs> you know, there's only one person there who's going to get stoned, um, and obviously there's partiality in that. And Jesus's response is, "He who is without sin cast the first stone." Um, and yeah, and they and they realize that they are all condemned under the law, um, and they don't have the authority to to judge her in that way. Yeah, that's right. That's a very relevant connection to this passage. This, uh, I want to show you that this quotation, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why is that called the royal law? I think it's partly because it's stated by the king, right? Jesus sums up the law, um, at least a substantial portion of the law, probably the last six parts of the Ten Commandments with this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and of course, that also comes from Leviticus 19, same chapter, right? Jesus didn't think of that um, himself, um, at least in his incarnation. Um, it was written to the law of God um, centuries before um, Jesus used it as a restatement of the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, the Lord said to Israel. In the same chapter where he said, don't show partiality, you can see how those things are connected. Because if you show partiality, you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. Because what are you going to want when you get judged? No partiality, right? You're to want to be judged equally without, you know, someone discriminating against you or someone uh, pushing you to the side because you don't have whatever it is that that would give you preference. Um, and so, the, loving your neighbor or showing no partiality is a form of loving your neighbor as yourself. I mean, he goes on. He talks about, as we've said, that to, to commit one sin is to be guilty of the whole law. Uh, Paul uses, of course, a very similar argument in Romans two. And when he was trying to help the Jews that he's writing to there, um, Jewish Christians, understand that they are, you know, there's not this great distinction between Jew and Gentile, that, that if, you know, you, you, if you do one thing, you're guilty of all of it, basically. Um, 
And of course, this is the kind of thing that Jesus did as well, right? He amplifies the law. He says, okay, maybe you haven't physically committed adultery, but if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, then you have committed adultery and you are condemned and judged under the law. It's interesting in verse 11, um, he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. I think that's interesting, especially in the historical context to which James writes. It is very possible that the readers to whom he writes are going to be tempted to murder in a way that they're not being tempted to commit adultery right now, right? If, if, if violence and and um, political oppression is being used against you, what have humans historically done throughout the centuries to, to throw those shackles off? They've used violence, right? Uh, and the Jewish history that many of these people are coming out of has had this tradition, right? The Zionist tradition that you have these Romans who are in our, in our business and will not leave, and so what are we going to do in response? We are going to have armed insurrection. That's what Barabbas was supposed to be executed for um, when he's released instead of Jesus, um, when Jesus is crucified. He was an insurrectionist against Rome. Um, there was a, you know, a rich tradition of this, of course, um, in the first century. And it's, it would not be at all surprising that at least some of the Jewish Christians that converted um, after Jesus' death and resurrection would be tempted very soon to say, well, these, these, these you know, Jewish, rich, powerful oppressors, they are like Rome. They're using power in the same kind of way. Um, let's start to kill them. Let's start to assassinate. Uh, let's start to have targeted violence in such a way as to get them off our backs. Um, so I, I think, I think the, 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 when he says, if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law, I think it's interesting because I think we'd all probably say, you know, in progression of the heinous nature of sins, adultery is bad, but murder is worse, right? So it's a little bit of an interesting argument that he says the worst sin makes you actually also guilty of the lesser sin, so to speak. And I think probably the reason he does that is because he knows that the Christians to whom he writes may even be tempted to use violence and even if not explicit murder, at least maybe forms of murder, you know, threats of violence, um, um, uh, violence that falls short of actual murder. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. I said a few minutes ago that all of us exercise authority in our lives. Um, all of us have a form of authority when people come into our church, not just the elders and deacons, but any church member. You know, if, if we show distinction and partiality, we're exercising authority and judgment. Um, all of us have authority in our families. All of us have authority in different avenues of our lives that the Lord has placed us. But what is the, uh, what is the, the not terribly subtle warning that James issues here to those who would exercise authority? How are you supposed to act? What's that? Yeah, who is one who not only has authority, but one who is under authority, right? Uh, we don't only have authority in our lives, we are also those who are under authority. This is very similar to the, the instructions of, of Paul in Ephesians and Colossians, where when he, um, he strongly um, talks about um, to masters, you know, treat your servants and your slaves with respect, knowing that you too have a master in heaven to whom you will give an account. Now, that, that's, a, that's a pretty substantial warning um, that he gives there. And it's given, the same kind of warning is given here to all of us, that 
we are to speak and to act and to judge, make judgments. It's inevitable. We have to make judgments. That's part of, you know, you can't get away from that. You have to do it. But you judge as those who are to be judged, those who are being judged by the judge. Yes. We're judged more strictly. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, our, our Westminster Larger Catechism says that very explicitly, that, um, that, that one of the things that makes a sin more heinous, right? Not all sins are equally heinous in the sight of God. Uh, one of the things that makes sins more heinous is if it is a sin committed by someone with authority against someone under their authority. Uh, that is worse than if you are committing a sin against someone over your authority. Uh, whoever has more authority is more accountable. Um, their sin is... Um, intrinsically uh, more heinous in the sight of God because of that authority, because of that power. That's right. Yeah. Sure, it's true. Those things are connected. Yeah, I think 1 John is really fascinating in that regard when he says, 1 John um, 3, um, when your hearts condemn you, um, remember that God is greater than your hearts. Um, but it, it does introduce, like you're saying, this aspect that our heart can actually exercise judgment against ourselves, and that's something that we have to, we have to realize that we don't have that ultimate authority, that the judgment of our hearts is not ours to make ultimately. It's ultimately God's. Yeah, that's right. And then just to close with 13, again, this, this, is a, this is a warning. That's what this is. Judgment was without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And it is a warning that is rooted directly in the teaching of Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus says, whatever measure you use will be measured back to you. Right? He says, he tells a parable about you know, the, the unforgiving servant who um, is forgiven a great sum and then goes to his neighbor and, and beats him because he owes him a little bit of money and he's thrown into jail. And Jesus closes that parable and says, you know, he just, just so we're clear, I know y'all missed the point of most of my parables. Here's what this means. If you don't forgive your brother of his sin against you, your heavenly father will not forgive you of your sin against him. You know, and then he walks away. Like that, that's the parable. And that's the kind of thing that's being talked about here. Judgment is without mercy for those who have shown no mercy. This is a sobering thing for all of us. It should be sobering in our church. It should be sobering for us in our families, and our lives in general. But then it comes also with this little emphasis of grace at the end too, which I'm thankful for. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And I, I think that's given partially for our assurance. All of us are going to fall short of this. All of us are going to use unjust standards to judge others. Um, this is part of being sinners, right? a big part of being sinners. Um, but we also have this promise that even when we judge others overly harshly, even when we make distinctions among ourselves um, falsely, mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's a, that is a, a promise that is given there. It's a statement. All right, let's uh, stand and pray together. We close. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're thankful for um, the wisdom that you call us to, that you, in Christ and our union with him, call us to reign as kings and queens. 
um, in creation and even over, over the world in some sense, Father. Um, Father, help us to believe truly that the most important um, thing that happens in any community in the world is when Christians gather together on Sundays on the Lord's Day um, for gathered worship, for word and sacrament, that here uh, we reign with Christ. And this is the center of the world and what we do here, Father. And help us, because of that, Lord, to be careful in the ways that we structure our church's life, in the ways that we exercise judgment. Help us not to be those who show partiality, um, not to be those that judge with evil thoughts, um, but those who imitate the Lord Jesus and who submit to his judgment and do not show partiality, um, but actually uh, live as those who know they will be judged one day as well. And Father, give us this wisdom. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.